let's begin. Okay, we're in, I just wanted to finish up with the, what we began with David and Batsheva, focusing on the Gemari Masechet Shabbat, David we talked about that. Whoever thinks David sinned is mistaken. And we pointed out what the context of that statement is. But we also pointed out that elsewhere in the, in the Talmud, not to speak, of course, of the book of Shmuel and Psalms, where David speaks of his own sin. And in the book of Shmuel, Chatati Lashem, he says it straight out. But in the Talmud itself, Talmud Bavli, uh, there is great attention paid to David, David's sin, and David's attempt to repent for the sin and the difficulty in repentance. I just wanted to complete what we started with and then turn to a different topic about David, one that I think that will prove very interesting. And um, so we were looking at the Gemara in, in, Masechet, in, in Masechet Sanhedrin. The way the sources, you have a whole bunch of sources that are organized according to biblical readings and they're organized according to uh, Talmudic readings. And this is the last week's uh, source. Sanhedrin is Dav Kuf Zion, page 107A and 107B. I'm not sure you have it in these sources, but we had it last week. And um, this is Sanhedrin Sadi Hey, that's not the source. It's the last week's source. Yes, I have the different file, so I can let me go grab that quickly. Okay, what, grab that file, Sanhedrin 107. And it's towards the bottom of 107A. So I just spent a few minutes um, on this source that we started last week. And then we'll move to a different, uh, a different topic about David that appears in the Bible in, in two significant places. But first I wanted to finish this, this source. So the, um, so the Gemara says on the Afkursayin Omedalif, um, further down, the Gemara says that Yama Rav Yehuda Amarav Bikesh David Lavod Avod Zara Amar Yehuda Amarav. A little right, right there, Rav Yehuda says in the name of Rav. David, King David, sought to engage in idol worship. This is during the rebellion of Avshalom. And David is running from Absalom, and the Book of Shmuel describes what is meeting different people and his his thinking in the beginning of the rebellion of Absalom. In the beginning, he seems basically to give up, and then he gains strength and he gains resolve as the story continues. And they quote the verse in Second Shmuel, Shmuel Bet, that David was walking and he came to the head, came to the top of the mountain. To Rosh. So the Gemara in Sanhedrin says um, Rosh means nothing other than idol worship. As it is stated, as for that image, its head was of fine gold. Verse from Daniel. So the Gemara makes the claim that David actually thought to, to engage in, in uh, idolatry. We know that the text of Shmuel claims that he engaged in murder and he engaged in, engaged in adultery. Those are two of the big three. And now the Gemarins ahead and suggest he was considering engaging in the third big Aveva, the three great sins, 
murder, adultery, and of course, idolatry. He was thinking to do this. So let's read a little bit more. So the, the text continues a little more, up more. Yes, okay. And it says, and when he's on, he reaches the top of the mountain, Hushai Haarki, Hushai is David's friend, comes to greet him. As David is escaping Jerusalem, Hushai comes to greet him. His coat is torn and there's earth upon his head. Hushai said to David, shall they say a king like you will engage in idol worship? David says to him, it is, it is preferable that they say with regard to a king like me, known to be righteous, that his son will kill him. David continued referring to himself in the third person. It is preferable that he, referring to David, shall engage in idol worship and the name of heaven shall not be desecrated in public through the murder of the righteous king. So if he's killed, there'll be a terrible thing that a righteous king was murdered by his own son, no less. So it's better people think I'm not so righteous. So David says, so let me engage in idolatry. Fine, very strange argument. So now Hushai, the meaning of David and Hushai is a very important episode in the book of Shmuel. Hushai is instrumental in, in getting David to take back the kingship. All of this, of course, is not in the text of Shmuel at all. But now the continuation is very striking. It says, Omar, he said, my timer can, can see that your fato. I'll move it up a little so they can, people can see the English as well. Is that right? So he said to him, why did you, um, why did you, uh, why did you marry a, uh, a, 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 can you see it? Can you, right. More. Right, stop. So it says, no, more, up, up, up. No, no, you're going the wrong direction here. It's further down on the page. Further, okay, I thought you going. said up, sorry. <laughs> no, no. That's it. So keep going a little more. Stop. Right. Hushai said to him, what is the reason that you married? Here the translation is a beautiful woman. That's not precise. Doesn't mean a beautiful woman. It means why did you marry a Yafatoar? Now a Yafatoar, that's in the Torah, in the book of Dvarim, that's a, a beautiful woman you see on the battlefield. She's not Jewish. And the Torah says, if in, during war you see this beautiful woman and you desire her, then you can take her for yourself. It's unclear in the Torah, and the commentaries are divided, what that means. Does it mean you're sleeping with her in the battlefield, and then if you want to marry her, there's a procedure, chapter 21 of Dvarim, where she has to mourn her past for 30 days, and uh, she cuts her fingernails and this and that, there's a procedure, and then if she, 30 days, you still desire her, you take her into your house. And in the Torah, it's not clear exactly what her status is of the Shifat Torah. Are you marrying a non-Jew? Or is she considered to be a Jew? That in the, in the, in the shot of the Chumash is very unclear. So according to this uh, text, Avshalom's mother was a Shifat Torah. So he said, he said to him, why did you marry a Yafat Torah? Now, how, is, how does this respond to what David is saying? 
David is saying, I'm going to worship idols. So, because if I don't worship idols, the people think I'm so righteous. So people, what a desecration of God's name. And Hushai's response in this Agadah is, why did you marry a Yafatoa? So I presume what it means is, why did you marry a Yafatoa is a, is saying in effect, perhaps you're not so righteous. In other words, you, you, you're having trouble with Avshalom. That's because his mother was a Yafatoa. Amalei, so, so, so David says to Hushai, Yifat Torah Rachman What are you talking about? The Torah permitted you to take the Yifat Torah. So it's permissible. I didn't do anything wrong. So, so Hushai says to him, Amalei, Rodarash Smuchin. This is actually very interesting and important for us in general. He says to David, Aren't you Doresh Smuchin? Now, what does that mean? So Gudrosh Smuchi means to interpret the biblical text, interpret the Torah, based on the proximity of two verses or two different, two different rules that appear next to each other. That's called Smuchin, Samuch. So according to one view in the Gemara, we are Doresh Smuchin. According to a different view, we're not Doresh Smuchin. But the Gemara says elsewhere, that everybody agrees that in the book of Devarim, where this text is found, we are Doresh Smuchim. It's interesting. The for Devarim were Doresh Smuchim. He says to David, weren't you Doresh Smuchim? Because the parsha of Yifat Toar, which is the beginning of chapter 21, afterwards it talks about if a man marries two wives, one he loves and one he hates, he shouldn't favor the son of the one that he loves. He has to favor the other son. And right after that, the parsha is Ki Ish Ben Umore, the parsha of the rebellious child. Ben Umore. Whoever takes the Yafatoar will end up, that child will be will be a Ben Sorer Umore, a wayward child, a rebellious child, sort of saying to, to David, Well, you may be following the letter of the law. Yifat Torah is not forbidden to you, but in the words of the Talmud elsewhere, Dibra Torah connected Yetzirah. Yifat Torah is not something the Torah approves of. It's technically permissible, but the Torah disapproves of it. And this, I think, is a very interesting observation here about, well, perhaps a critique of David put into the mouth of of uh, of of Hushai Arki, David's friend, David's negotiator, who will be instrumental in allowing David to return to the, to the kingship. Now, what's interesting is, that's this particular text over here. In today's lengthy set of sources that I distributed, there is a source from the second chapter of Sanhedrin which also talks about the Sanhedrin chapter 21a, the last source, 21a, right there, right? Look, at the, look what it says, we'll read the English here. Almost so Rabbi Yehuda Amarav. Rabbi Yehuda says, this is a Gemara in Sanhedrin. 
earlier in Sanhedrin, a remarkable Gemara. Rabbi Yehuda says, in the name of Rav, David had 400 children in his army, and all of them were sons of beautiful women taken captive from their Gentile homes during war. They grew their hair in Gentile hairstyle. They sat in carriages of gold. They walked at the head of the troops and they were the strong arm and forces of the house of David on whose loyalty David's monarchy relied. That's the translator's interpretation. That's the first statement. So David has not one son of Yafat Toar, rebellious Absalom. He has 400. Now we'll come back to this 400 in, in a minute. That's a significant number in the book of Shmuel and significant over here. These are David's strong arm in forces. That's the statement. And now we have another statement of Rabbi Yehuda Amarav. David's daughter Tamar was the daughter of a beautiful woman taken captive in war and was born before her mother converted. So Tamar, in the story of, of course, chapter 13 of Shmuel the story of Amnon and Tamar, Tamar is the sister of Amnon who, who rapes her, Amnon being David's oldest child. And after Tamar is assaulted by Amnon, her other brother, Absalom, kills Amnon. Now, when, when uh, Amnon maneuvers to get Tamar brought to his house, because she lives in the house of the king, perhaps you remember that she, he tries to assault her. And she says to him, and this is quoted later down, she says to him, don't do this terrible thing speak to the king, he will not withhold me from you. She says, listen, what are you doing this for? Speak to the king and we, and we can get married. It'll be legitimate, it'll be kosher. So the Talmud says, if it enters your mind that she was the daughter of a woman David married, would David have permitted Amnon's sister to him as a wife? It's a sister, can't marry a sister from the father. Rather learn from this verse, she was the daughter of a beautiful woman, of Yifat Toar, who converted after Tamar was born. So logically, she was not David's daughter. So I wanted to reflect a moment on this remarkable Gemara in Sanhedrin, the Kafawaf Amid So it turns out that this idea of Yifat Toar, the woman captured in, in war, um, as Hushai points out very pointedly, is something the Torah allows, but does not encourage. One might say censures, but also sanctions at the same time. It's not just that Avshalom is the son of Yifat Toar, but actually David has 400 sons of Yifat Toar, who are his main enforcers, according to this Gemara. And furthermore, the claim is that is that Tamar, his daughter, was also the daughter of Yifat Toar. And the Gemara says that, or proves it, as it were, from the fact that if she was in fact his real daughter, and, Tamar, and Amnon is his son, and Amnon and Tamar 
our sister and brother from the father, we know that the verse in the Torah, in Vayikra, says black on white, that a sister and a brother are forbidden to each other, both either if it's the sister from the father or from, or, or from the mother, either one is forbidden. And the Gemara is assuming that the book of Shmuel uh, accepts what it says in the book of Vayikra. I'm not so sure about that personally, but that's a different story. And that's what the Gemara assumes. How could she say to him, speak to our father, and he will legitimize the, the marriage if in fact she's a half-sister? So it must be that she's a, the daughter of a Yifat Torah. Now, just to re reflect on this for a moment, and I have two points I'd like to make about Yifat Torah, and then if people uh, have some comments to make, please unmute and speak. Um, what's interesting, first of all, is that if you're familiar with the book of Shmuel, you remember that David has 400 soldiers. The initial people that followed David, David is essentially running away from the king. He's seen by Saul as a, as a rebel, or to use the word that we encountered elsewhere in terms of Uriah, He's a Moed B'malchut. He is actually a rebel against the king. That's how Saul sees him. He's on the top end. He's, the, he's on the wanted list, number one. And to David gravitated, says, 400 desperate men. So David has initial, David's army is 400 men. Later in the book of Shmuel, an additional 200 men join David after a success. But the 400 join David when he's down and out, when he's desperate when he's running from the king. They are described as bitter people, people that have debts. Essentially, one might say in terms of society, people on the margins, perhaps criminals. These are David's 400 men. Now the number 400 men in the book of Shmuel is hardly an accident. Because those who have studied the book of Shmuel perhaps have, have figured out that 400 men appears in the Torah precedes David having 400 men. There's someone else who has 400 men in the Torah. None other than Esau. When, when Yaakov is, sees Esau coming towards him, he comes towards him with 400 men. And the 400 men of Esau's army and Esau and David have much in common. They're both red. David is an Admoni, Esau is Edom, and they have the 400 men, and the 400 men presumably are connected to killing, the redness being blood, taking of blood. So here in the Gemara, in the spirit of the book of Shmuel, the 400 are not 400 Jewish men. They are 400 people taken in war, essentially. The woman who was taken legitimately or whatever, permissibly in war, but the uh, the spirit of the Torah certainly is opposed to it, as Hushai says. And here you have actually Absalom and Tamar, and David's army consists of 400 soldiers that are the sons of Yifat Torah. Now my question is, before I open it up to comments or questions, what is the, what are these Agadot picking up on? Clearly, there is a critique here, a powerful critique of David, but what are they picking up on? 
So I wanted to make a suggestion because it's always interesting to see where these agadotes are coming from in painting this portrait, this very complex portrait of David, and it's not all negative, but there's plenty of critique. And I want to make one point about David that is not obvious in the Book of Shmuel, and it's the following point. In the story of David and Bathsheba that we began with, whoever says David sinned is mistaken, okay? And the uh, in Bathsheba's story, of course, Bathsheba's pregnant, and David, that's a problem for David, both a personal problem and a problem in terms of the kingship. David wants to solve that problem, so his initial, initial thinking is send Uriah home under some pretext that he's bring, being brought back to give a report about war, send him home, and uh, this way, uh, no, he'll sleep with his wife, uh, uh, Bathsheba. No one will know who the father of the child is. Unfortunately for David, uh, Uriah refuses to go home. Refuses to go home. It's not right. I can't do it. The soldiers are in the field. The ark of God is in the field. David tries every which way to get him home. He refuses to go. David hands Uriah a note, essentially sent to the general ostensibly a report, it's a secret information, but actually it says, kill me. Uriah carries his own death sentence and Uriah is killed. The details of which I'm not gonna get into now, but Uriah Achiti is killed. After Uriah Achiti is killed and David gets the report, it says the following. It's the end of chapter 11. You actually have it in the, in the, in the new sources. Chapter 11, the very end of chapter 11, it says that, that Bathsheba hears, um, Bathsheba, though it's, that's chapter 12 already, chapter 11 is earlier, right around there. It says, Batishma Eshet Uriah, top of the page there. This is Bathsheba, right there. She heard that um, Uriah had died. Batishmoda Ba'ala, she mourned her husband. And after the days of mourning passed, David sent for her and gathered her into his house. And she was, took her as, as a wife and she bore for him a child. And the matter that, and the, the matter, the thing that David did was evil in the eyes of God. What's interesting here is this idea of, and the book of Shmuel emphasizes that after the death of Uriah, she mourns her husband and David waits for the days of mourning to pass. And then David takes her by Yasfeu el Beito. He gathers her into his house. He gathers her into his house. He has other wives as well. She becomes one of David's wives. And this description of Bathsheba, of mourning, grieving over the husband and waiting for the days of mourning to pass and taking her into the house has an eerie parallel in the Torah. The Torah says, when you see the beautiful woman in war, you take her for a wife, she comes into your house, and for 30 days she mourns her parents. And she is, she's, she's in a state of mourning. And after those 30 days, you bring her into your house. So what's interesting is that the book of Shmuel 
it describes David's behavior towards Bathsheba, it reminds us actually of the parsha of the Ephatoar. What David has managed to do in the story, which began with David staying home from the, from the war. He doesn't get involved in the war. He sleeps in the afternoon. He walks on the roof at night, sees Bathsheba. Then he attempts to uh, cover up the, the crime. He pretends, he summons Uriah pretending to get a report about the war, but there's no interest in it. And then he sends Uriah to be killed by the enemy. One of his best soldiers to be killed by the enemy. And when we say the coup de grace at the end of it is treating your own soldier or your own soldier's wife as the wife of the enemy who's been killed in battle. When in point of fact, it's David that killed Uriah Hachiti. The book, I have no doubt that the Agadot saw this very clearly and they pick up on this. So the book of Shmuel has its own devastating critique, but the Agadot actually sort of fill in the picture. This idea of the Ifatoa, the idea of, of taking the women in battle, having killed the enemy in an inappropriate way. If it happens one time, that's one thing. But Tamar is the daughter of Yifatoar, and so is Avshalom. And it's very unclear how many of the 400 were David's Yifatoar, and how many belonged to David's soldiers. Very unclear. These are the enforcers of David's army. So I think this is actually an interesting, you know, again, the Bavli is, one might say, merciless at times in terms of its picture of David. Now, it will, there will be a much rounder picture of David and a much more a fuller picture of David. So we'll stop here for a moment and if people have comments or questions, I'll be happy to try to address them. David, was Avshalom also a band of the Yafatoar or just Tamar? No, Avshalom. Also. That's how we began all this. Avshalom was, a, that was Hushai's Russia. Right. And David said, I'm such a righteous person. Should a righteous man like me be killed? And Hushai said, as I understand it, you ain't so righteous. But I keep the letter of the law. You may keep the letter of the law, but you're not Doresh Smuchim. And by the way, there's something else very interesting about the, the Talmud in general. What the Talmud does, and we'll have to reflect on this together, not right now, but in the future, the Talmud has David and Yoav and Shimi and Doe and Achitofel and Mephiboshet. They're all in the Beit Medrash. They're all, the, the, the Talmud has this picture presents us with a picture of these different uh, scholars, as it were, having all kinds of legal Talmudic debates. And the question is what to make of that. Here's a good example. Hushai says to David, you, you have to be Doresh Smuchim. Don't you know with Doresh Smuchim? That's your problem. The problem is you read the text, but you weren't really Doresh Smuchim. And what's interesting, in addition, and we'll see this Perhaps we'll begin it today, but next week is when things get very interesting. Um, and you really get a sense of these agadot. They're interesting in and of themselves. They speak to each other, and they're reading the text in the most interesting way. And I think very, very profound way of reading the text. But you have this consistently, we have this consistently. 
that David is often presented as a, sometimes as a great teacher, but more often than not, he is a, he, he is a pupil. And these people around him, Shimi and Doeg, etc. even Avenir at times gets involved. When you read the book of Shmuel, these are people basically who are generals, killers, uh, sometimes a dubious behavior. But in the Talmud, they are to some degree, you know, learners. And we'll, and we'll see this. Um, now, but Doeg also, Doeg also is uh, always stirring the pot to Shaul to get get yes, get, after get, David, will, get after David. Yes, we will discuss Doeg at some at some in some ways, uh, either beginning today or next week. Doeg is very interesting, and we'll get to Doeg. But let me say that Doeg, the 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 the, the, the broader context of this of what we're looking at in Sanhedrin page 107 and page 95 that we'll get to next, the Perak is called Chelek. And Perak yeah. Chelek, which is seen here as the last Perak of Sanhedrin or the 10th Perak, it's a long Perak. It's the longest Agadic Perak that we have in the, in the Talmud. It's very long. And it begins with the Mishnah, that's how the Perak starts. All of Israel has a, has a portion in the world to come, except, and the Mishnah has exceptions to the rule. Let's see if we can find those exceptions. So the exceptions, um, let's see. Shlosha melachim v'yarboa hediotos enu Three kings and four civilians have no portion in the world to come. Okay. Who are, the, who are the four that have no portion in the world to come? So the list of the four, the end of the first Mishnah in this chapter, Bilam is one, Doeg is two, Achitofel is three, and Gehazi is four. So two of the four actually, Doeg and Achitofel, Doeg seems to be a very prominent person in Saul's, uh, Saul's monarchy. Achitophel is David's chief advisor. So two of the four actually are advisors to kings. And I would say the three, the third, the first one, Bilam, is also an advisor to kings. Bilam is, of course, advising uh, or helping Balak, the king of Moab. Gehazi is the protege of Elisha the prophet. That's what the Mishnah says. The Gemara, though, will say some extraordinary interesting things about Doeg and Achitofel, especially Doeg Vadomi. Rabbi, in any event, uh, Achitofel is Batsheva's grandfather? Yes, he is. Is Achitofel she in any way- Achitofel grandfather, that's correct. Right, so is she in any way, you know, have some of his stain or, I mean, we don't seem to see anyone, um, you know, it's really strange. He's one of the, you know, strong men, and he's clearly he's a brilliant. He's considered to be a brilliant advisor. Yeah, yeah. David's teacher, as it one of David's many teachers, sort of goes over to the other side. The question you're asking about whether Bathsheba is ever condemned in the Book right. of Shmuel and beginning of Malachim is an excellent question. 
Um, I don't, my own personal view, it's a very good question. My own personal view is that in the book of Shmuel, the book of Shmuel, I think, abstains from condemning her. Yeah. Uh, I think the reason for that probably is we don't want to condemn anybody else. The book of Shmuel has only one main interest in that story. That's condemning David. So Uri, of course, is, I, I, I believe, as his name suggests, the light of God, Oria. David operates in stealth, in the, in the shadows. Yeah. And I think that in that context, there's no specific condemnation of Bathsheba at all, as far as I, I read it. Okay. When it comes to the beginning of Malachim, where Bathsheba and Natan conspire to or convince David that Shlomo should be the king, there is some intimation over there that others could see the non-choosing of Shlomo as a, as a product of, 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 of the fact that David and Bathsheba sin. Bathsheba mm -hmm. says, we'll be, we, we will be sinners. We'll, we will be seen as sinners. So there, perhaps, but for the most part, I think the text that we have does not condemn uh, Bathsheba, nor did the Agada we saw last week condemn Bathsheba either. I think that it was, she's an innocent bathing behind the beehive, and David shoots the arrow and that the bird, Satan sets a bird out and the arrow breaks the beehive and she's exposed. And we'll see that that description of David and Satan and the arrows will come up again in, the, in, in, the, in an Agadah that we'll see probably next week. We do have a class next week. I know it's election night. So we'll build our class ends at nine o'clock. And uh, so yeah. we, will, um, we, will, we will meet next week. Um, okay, I just wanted to come, just to finish this uh, thought here about David as he appears in this Gemara and Daf and Daf Kufzayin. David, excuse me. Yes. Yes. Um, just to speak, I think it was Suri. I think I heard if I recognize the voice, Suri, just before when you asked about Tamar and um, and if she uh, was also the um, the daughter of the Yifator. Um, I mean, she had to be because she and and Avshalom are sisters. A sister and brother, and that's the right. problem. Uh, that's the problem uh, because they're actually sister and brother, um, but but it's the play of Amnon being a quasi brother treats her as a sister. Everyone looks at her as a sister, but he of course treats her as a uh, as a as an object of desire, and then he, he uh, obviously violates right. her. So I think they're playing on the who is a sister and who is a brother. Um, right. I think. Part of the part of the ink you always say that the ink of Samuel is really it's written in, in blood. I think that's part of the bloody ink is this the, the whole twisting of what is consanguineous and what is not. Right, but I'm saying, but another way to see that, another way to say what you're suggesting, which is clearly true, that Absalom is a full brother and Amnon is a half brother. Correct. It's another way to read it, which would not be a so-called traditional way to read it, perhaps. But the, the assumption of the commentaries is that the book of Shmuel works with what it says in the Torah. It says in the Torah that a sister, either from the father or the brother, is in fact forbidden. It does say that in the book of Ayikra, Bato Avivo, Batimo, explicitly. I think one can legitimately at least raise the question whether what it says in the Torah was necessarily the common practice, because we know for example, we know that uh, earlier in the Torah, 
before the Torah is given, that when the story of Abraham, when Abimelech right. asked Abraham, how come you said that she is my, my sister? Right. What do you mean she's your sister? She's your wife. And one of Abraham's answers to Abimelech in chapter 20 is she really is my sister, he says. She's my sister from the father's side, but not the mother's side. I took her as a wife. And when you read that, what he seems to be saying is, she's my sister from the father's side, and therefore I could take her as a wife. Because the Torah only forbade, that's what Abram seems to be saying, at least in his time, forbade a sister from the mother, but not a sister from the father, which makes perfect sense, by the way, because you know who the mother is. You can't always tell who the father is. Um, so the point is, that's a different way to read the book of Shmuel. But the Gemara is interested in this Yifat Torah business because it says something about David in the text that we saw, namely, dubious behavior, which technically speaking is permissible. And what it sounds like to me, what Hushai is saying to David, don't worry that people will think a great Sadiq was killed. You're not such a great Sadiq. That's my take on it in any event. Okay, let's just, let's see if we can just continue. Rabbi? Yes. I just, I wanted just to, to clarify something. What, what I was getting at in my question is, were, I know that they were both, that they were siblings and they were both born from that same mother. But what I was, I, what I didn't make clear in my question is the conversion. Were they both born before she converted? Because it, the conversion is critical. It's, it's, it's because it's what makes him able to say they're not related. Because once you convert, you leave Tamar, your whole family behind. Right. In the case of Avshalom, it wouldn't be necessary. But in the case right. of Tamar, right, of course, in the case of Tamar, it's, it, 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 it tries to explain that verse. The Agadot do, do many things at the same time. In the case of Avshalom, that would be unnecessary. We don't care if he's, if the mother was converted before or not, that's irrelevant. Right. Right. In the case okay. of Tamar, it's a, but, but what is interesting is, that it is comparing the two. And it's saying beyond Avshalom and Tamar, it's making a different point about Yusufat Toar, which is that his army consists basically of, of Yufay Toar, which apart from everything else, his enforcers are people who fundamentally are outsiders in the sense, it's, it's a question, are they actually Jewish or not? Now we know the Book of Shmuel has many people who's at least, who are coming from a non-Jewish place. That's true. Book of Shmuel is replete with them. But the idea that David's core support comes from this dubious source is something that the Gemara constructs, obviously. It's not in the text. They are embittered people. They may even be criminals or whatever. But they're not your Torah or the children of your Torah. Okay, let me just complete this last piece that we started with, and then we'll start with a new topic, one that's very complicated, and I find it fascinating. And that is that, back to page 107, further down on the page. And now we have something else that's interesting. The Gemara here, engages in a uh, sort of a drusha, largely focusing on, on, on Psalm number 19. Very beautiful Psalm. 
Hashemayim is happening for now. And in the psalm, um, the psalmist, David, is, is pleading with God to forgive his sins. And the Gemara says that Rabdustai said, David is like a merchant who is bargaining. It's like a merchant who is bargaining. Um, and he asked God to forgive his sins. First, he asked God to forgive the sins that were committed uh, inadvertently. So he's asking God to forgive him from various sins, those that were committed by accident, those things that were hidden from me. And then, so he said he asked God to forgive even those sins that were committed not accidentally. Um, he asked um, from hidden faults, um, from intentional sins, and right in the middle, God says they're forgiven. Let them not have dominion over me. I shall be faultless, faultless. I further request that the sages will not speak of me and condemn me. God said to him, they are forgiven for you. Now let's keep going down more. David requested, and I shall be clear from great transgression, meaning that my transgression will not be written in the Bible. God said to him, that is impossible. The letter Yud that I removed from the name Sarai, when I changed the name to Sarah, was standing and screaming for several years over its omission from the Bible until Yoshua comes. And they added the Yud to Hosea's name. Moshe called him Yoshua. I can't take your story out of the, I can't take your story about your sin out of the Bible. It can't be omitted. Now let's read a little bit more. So David is asking, um, David is asking forgiveness and my story should not be told. The verse says, I will clear you from great transgression. God said, master of the universe, pardon me for that entire sin. God said to him, the son Solomon is already destined to say with his wisdom, can a man take fire in his lap and his garments not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So too one who lies with his neighbor's wife, anyone who touches her shall not go unpunished. David said, will that man himself, David, be expelled from the congregation for no remedy? God said, accept upon yourself afflictions and that will atone for your sins. He accepted afflictions upon himself. The afflictions he accepts upon himself, the Gemara continues, he becomes a leper for six months. The Gemara discusses this, how do they know this? Let's read some more further down. I want to get to this last point about David. So David is, David is abandoned by everybody. A leper is on the outs. A leper is abandoned. He was afflicted with leprosy. As it is written in Psalm 51, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. The divine presence abandoned David, as it is stated. Restore me to the joy of your salvation. Restore me. Uphold me with a willing spirit. The members of the Sanhedrin disassociated themselves from him. 
as it is written in another verse, keep going down. So he's abandoned by God. He's abandoned by his fellow scholars. He's abandoned by the people. He's a leper. You can keep going down, keep going down, down, down. And now David said before God, pardon me for my sin. It's forbidden. It's forgiven. Perform on my behalf a sign that those who hate me may see it and be put to shame. And God said to David, in your lifetime, I will not make it known that you were forgiven. I will make it known in the lifetime of your son, Shlomo. Let me just stop you for a moment. And this does not sound from the Gemara, page 107a and b, that whoever says David sinned is making a mistake. You're talking about, this is very powerful. David is concerned that for this, he will be completely banished from, from, from the Jewish people and banished before God. And in order to, uh, to achieve forgiveness, he has to accept upon himself the deepest kind of, 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 of affliction, which is abandonment and a complete aloneness, a leper, an outsider, the ultimate outsider. And God says to David, the full forgiveness can only come, the knowledge that you are forgiven will not come in your life. It can only come in the lifetime of your son, Shlomo. And now we have the famous story that when Shlomo builds the Beit HaMikdash and he wants to bring the ark into the Holy of Holies and the gates refuse to let him in. The gates close up because when Shlomo says, who is the king of glory, says the Gemara elsewhere, the gates think he's talking about himself. They think he's talking about himself. So he absolutely refused to let him bring the ark in until it says in Agadah, when he said, then he said, God, remember the good deeds of David, your servant. At that moment, the gates opened and the faces of David's enemies turned dark. And all the Jewish people knew that David had been forgiven for the sin. But that's the end of the Agada here. And um, the reason I cited all this this evening was just to give a, a, a sense, we should understand that the Bavli takes David's sin as being something of an enormous import and the, the difficulty of achieving forgiveness, what it takes to achieve forgiveness. And that in his lifetime, actually, I think there's a very deep truth to that. And then I'll take comments and questions or whatever, that because the question is how are people remembered actually? And there's a difference sometimes between the way people are remembered in their lifetime and the way we see people afterwards. And, the, and the, we have a different perspective from, from a distance. And they very often things that people do, people make mistakes, people are sinful. And the fact of the matter is that um, of course, the psalm that's being cited over here, which is Psalm 24, is David Mismar. It's one of the psalms that's described specifically to David. 
And um, the point is that in after time, we get a very different sense of what David has contributed. And the fact of the matter is that our, our, our prayers, basically, if you talk about somebody who is central in the, in the construction of, 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 our, of our liturgy, it's got to be David. David we say. We're going to praise you with the songs of David. So yes, the Talmud, and in fact, the text doesn't doesn't look doesn't look aside about David's sin. The Book of Shmuel was pretty clear about it, and we'll get to that. I think in beginning next week, really see how the how the Agadot and the Bavli how they understand these stories, and I think they give us a deeper insight into the stories. Having said all that, at the end of the day, we are singing David's songs. We are praying with David's prayers, and time and time allows for that. Time allows for that. Time allows for a different perspective to be able to focus in on the on the on the on the gifts of, 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 of on the contributions of somebody, and not to forget about it. As, as it says here, it can't be forgotten. We're going to read your story. Having said that, we're also going to to sing your songs. I think that's actually a very important point, and I think what the what the Gemara is getting at here in Sanhedrin. Okay, before we continue, I just wanted to does anybody have comments or questions about what we've done so far? We're going to put the David Batsheva story largely aside, and we're going to focus in on another story, which the Bible will focus in on in two different places in an interesting way. Does anybody have anything to say about this now? And otherwise we will. I'll give an introduction to the next section. Ravi? Yes. Uh, question. So um, is, is the uh, Gemara deliberately paraphrasing, almost quoting Cain um, in the passage we just read about how, yes. uh, it, yeah, it's the list. So it's back, it's harking back again to the Adam Harishon story with David. It can't let, it just doesn't let it go. The Gemara really holds on to, you know, Adam and Cain and the sins and the primal sins and, and the, well, the that's whole. Certainly the case. Sure, everything leads back to Genesis. There's no doubt about it. But, but specifically, it also, it also Cain picks up on the sinner. It picks, it's picking up also on Psalm 51. Mm -hmm. Psalm 51 is Psalm that is written um, when the prophet Nathan came to David after Bathsheba, that's how Psalm 51 begins. Uh, it's, it is one of the most powerful Psalms that we have. It appears, pieces of it appear in our, in our, in our liturgy, several of the verses, including Hashem's mm -hmm. These are Psalms and they're referenced by the, by the Gemara. It's interesting, by the way, that Psalm 51 Khaneni is known as Miserere, and for the Christians, it's, the, it's the, probably the most important psalm. And it's a psalm that has been set to, to, uh, to, um, to music, actually. Bach mm -hmm. has it, I think Mozart. And I believe, and there's a very famous story about Psalm 51, maybe I'll get to it another time, about a particular uh, musical rendition by a fellow named uh, Allegri, which is a very interesting story. Maybe I'll another time get into that. Psalm 51 in our tradition is a central psalm. 
And it's all about a request for forgiveness. My sin is with me. David said it. My sin is always before me. And that verse in the Psalms is what they're picking up over here. You can't really eliminate the past. Past is with you. The question is, how do we evaluate the past? Do we learn from the past? Um, these are the questions. So it's with us. And God says to David, I can't not write it down. It's, it happened, basically. But the question is, can we ever get past our, our, our past? And the answer here is that with time, we often can, or we can focus on, on, on a different aspect of, of the person. But that's a, a very central question when it comes to repentance, which is what Psalm 51 is about. And one of the things that David's about, David is, is, is repentance and David are, are bound together. Okay, let me just introduce now the next, the, next, um, the next section we're going to be dealing with. And that is um, what interested the Gemara. One of the stories that interested the Gemara is the story of Nov. Now, the story of Nov, which is, begins in, it says, in, your, in your sources over here, it's 1 Samuel 20 to 20 and then 24 to 42. 1 Samuel 21, 1 Samuel 22. Let me just very, give a very brief introduction to the story of Nov and, 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 and one point about where the Gemara is going to take the story of Nov. The story of Nov is this. David, Saul is sort of insanely jealous of David and Saul has determined to kill David. David, uh, and David knows this, and David enlists the support of Saul's son, Jonathan, Jonathan, David's dear friend, to first of all, to be certain that Saul actually is out to get him and to help David escape. That's, that's the story. We read this when Rosh Chodesh falls on Sunday, as it did recently, Machar Chodesh. That's the story of the arrows. When Jonathan comes out to the field, he shoots the arrows. He wants David to run and David runs to safety. Now, where does David run to? So in the book of Shmuel, the place that David runs to, the first place he runs to is the city of Nov. Now the story of Nov will be a story that the Talmud in the Agadot will deal with extensively. And that's what we're going to deal with next. But let me just give a very brief introduction to the story of Nov. Nov is a city of priests. David runs it away. He doesn't have weapons with him. He has no food with him. He's on the run. And he comes to the city of priests and he talks to the head priest, whose name is Achimelech. And he says to Achimelech, Achimelech says, why are you alone? And nobody with you, what is this? And David says, I'm on a secret mission. The king has sent me on a secret mission. And David requests that Achimelech give him food, give him food that can sustain him and the men he's going to meet up with, because he claims he's going to meet up with men later. And Achimelech, perhaps is initially somewhat skeptical, he asks David, the only food we have in Nov is sacred food, is sacrificial food, sacrificial bread. Can I give you the bread? Are the men going to be washing themselves in terms of ritual purity? 
David assures them that they are pure. And Achimoch gives David bread. Then David says, you know, I have no sword because I had to run away very quickly. It was a split second decision. He says, it was nochutz, it was pressing, playing on the word chitzim. He says, I had to run away. And he says, I have no sword here. It's a city of priests. We, we, don't, we don't fight, but we have a little museum here. The sword of Goliath happens to be here. David says, and that's a wonderful sword. I'll take it. So he has the sword of Goliath. Fine. David leaves. And David actually goes to the land of the Philistines in the very next chapter. And the Philistines suspect him and David pretends to be mad. And David escapes the Philistines. When at the time David is in the city of Nov, someone else is there. Who is there at the same time? Doeg Adomi. Doeg, one of the four, has no share in the world to come. Doeg Adomi is there. Who is Doeg Adomi? Doeg the Edomite. Abia Haroim Shaul, Saul's chief shepherd. And Saul is ranting and raving. Nobody cares about me. Nobody loves me. Everybody's abandoned me. Everybody betrays me. My own son is in, is in league with, with the son of Jesse, with, with, with David. And no one wants to help me. And Doeg speaks up. I saw the son of Jesse. I saw David. He was in the city of the priests, the city of Nob. And Saul summons Achimelech. And Doeg says to, to, uh, to Saul, he gave him food, he gave him a sword, and he inquired of God for him. Now, the inquiring of God for him does not seem to be true. It's a mistake on Doeg's part. The priest did not inquire for David. Inquiring for David is a serious matter. You inquire from the priest usually when you go to war. And Saul suspects David may go to war against Saul. So he summons Achimelech, the high priest of Nob. He says, why did you give him a sword and food? And why did you inquire of God? Well, I gave him a sword and food, says Achimelech. Why not? Who is more trusted than your son-in-law, David? But inquiring of God, I never did that. And Saul says, you did. And you will die in all the priests. And Saul says to his soldiers around him, kill these priests. But the soldiers refuse to obey Saul's command. They're not going to kill priests, unarmed priests. So Saul says to Doeg, you do it. You testified against them. And Doeg the Edomite goes around and he kills all the priests. One priest escapes, Eviatar, who later links up with David. And what I wanted to say about this is the following. What David says to Eviatar, he says, you stay with me. And we'll come back to this verse next week. And I believe the Agadot use this as the point of departure and construct this fabulous set of Agadot and amazing statements in the Talmud about David. And David said to Eviatar, I knew that Doeg the Edomite was here. I knew he would report to the king. I am the cause of the death of your family. And he says to him, you stay with me. It's the end of the chapter, you stay with me, he says. And for you are, um, 
you are a mishmeret. You're somebody who I will guard or you are a sacred person for me. That's the story of Nov. So the story of Nov is typically understood and we'll stop at this point. The story of Nov is understood and it's true that the Saul who didn't call all, all of the Amalekites when commanded to do so in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, kills the priests of Nov, mistakenly, I would add. He massacres all of the priests of Nov, save one who runs away. And that's a condemnation and a terrible condemnation of King Saul. That is clearly the main focus in the book of Shmuel. However, it is interesting that David says at the end of that chapter, you know, I knew that Doeg the Edomite was here, was in the city of priests. And therefore, and I, I knew he would tell the king, I am the cause, Anochi Saboti, I am a cause of the death of your family, you stay with me. And we'll see, starting next week, we will see that that statement of David that the Talmud takes that statement and runs with it. And it runs with it in the most interesting directions. It's really something, I've spent a lot of time studying and teaching the book of Shmuel, always new things. But the Agadot actually let you see things, I'm talking about the Pshat. They let you get a very a different sense of what really could be a very plausible reading of the story. So we'll start next week with the city with Nov. Will take us more than one week. There are two main texts in the, in the Talmud about Nov. One is in Sanhedrin, Tzadi Hay, and that will take us a, probably two weeks. And then there's a Gemara in in Masechet Yevamot that's also on the list, which is also extraordinarily interesting. So hopefully this will uh, we're out for a picture of David, and also we're out to see perhaps to some extent, how the Talmud is reading the, the, these texts and especially the book of Shmuel. So I'll stop at this point. If anybody has any comments, please uh, speak up now. Otherwise, I'll see you next week at hopefully eight o'clock.